second life lesson that I've learned is always when you're starting out in any role, always, or really in generally any situation, don't be the smartest person in the room. Always surround yourself with people that are much smarter than you. This is the Indianness Podcast, stories of success from leaders and change makers of Indian origin. Why have Indians achieved success across so many different disciplines around the globe? I have no idea, but let's find out together because every story is unique. I'm very excited to have Manish Goyal with us today. He's the CEO of Mayo Clinic platform with the Mayo Clinic. He's also been at C-level roles at many companies. I invited him on this show as I was fascinated by his journey from a graduate degree in electrical engineering to becoming CEO of one of the most prestigious medical institutions in the world. Welcome, Manish. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Sanjay. Wonderful. Manish, in our podcast, we try to capture the journey of our change makers so that others get inspired. And in order to obviously capture the journey, we like to go right to the beginning. So can you please take our listeners and viewers to where you were born and just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So actually, I was born in a small part of India, just south of Jaipur, so the state of Rajasthan, in a city called Ajmer. So I was born there. I was eight when we left the country, and it's a fascinating tale of how my family ended up here, at least in our own history. And if you don't know anything about Ajmer, it's an interesting part of the world, and Rajasthan itself is an interesting part of the world. It's captured or captive in time. So when you go there, it feels like going to old India. It's evolving, but ever so slowly. Lots of forts, lots of colorful food, lots of colorful attire. And Ajmer itself is interesting because it was a stopping off point for a lot of hippies in the 60s on mm. their way to a lake or a mountaintop called Pushkar. And, and so we got a lot of interesting influence from Western parts of the world. And the other fact of Ajmer is it's a fairly blended city, large number of Hindus, large number of Muslim, and large number of Sindhis as well. So it's an interesting microcosm where people have lived mostly peacefully throughout history. So it gives me a sense of pride when I think about that. That's where I'm from. Yeah. Also famous for the Mayo College and several other things too, right, Manish? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. An unaffiliated Mayo College. Unaffiliated Mayo College. So you were born in Ajmer, right, Manish? Yeah, I was born there. I have two siblings. I've got two younger brothers, four years younger and six years younger. So in many ways, I broke the mold, broke all the rules. So my brothers didn't have to fend with that. And all three of us were born in Ajmer. Wonderful. Tell us a little bit about the parents, mom and dad. Mom passed away 20 years ago, but growing up, she was a homemaker, high school education. My father was getting his electrical engineering degree at a fairly decent school in, in Ajmer. As you said, there's a couple of different great post-secondary as well as colleges in, in Ajmer. And my grandfather ran a business, sewing machine repair shop and a fan repair shop. And his business was starting to, this was the I would say 70s, 1970s, it was starting to get into troubled times. And so my father quit his degree and to support the 
business. And even then that didn't help. He basically didn't have a completed degree and in this sort of failed family business that required us to think about alternative locations and alternative lifestyles. It's a little bit of a prelude as to why we're here. Manish, just want to address that. Grandfather was in the swing machine repairs. Let's say singer machines generally at that time. Yep, I've seen at that time it used, I don't know, maybe in your time, initially it used to be the hand stuff and then with the feet stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But then the business, because maybe of automation and stuff like that, and dad left his engineering degree to join that and the business kind of didn't work out. How old were you at that time, Manish? I was probably four or five at the time. So this is where it's more offhand, secondhand information from my conversations with my parents and my grandparents. But it was probably four or five years old. So you don't have direct memory of that traumatic time, right? When the business didn't do well, what did dad do, Manish? When I was six, so this would be late 70s, I had an aunt, Abua, so my father's sister, who had immigrated to the U.S., was living in the Boston area. My father did what a lot of families did at the time, looked for better pastures. And he came to the U.S. when I was six, looking to establish a better life, potentially send money back to support that that family. Interestingly, my father was the only boy of a family of six people. And so a lot of sisters and when in, in our culture, that meant he, has a, he had a lot of responsibility. And, and he had a sister that was not yet married as well. So that created additional pressure, as you can imagine. But so he, again, when I was six, he immigrated to the U.S. to establish a foundation of sorts, not a foundation in the legal sense, but uh, something for him to build a family in the U.S. So the interesting parts of that journey are without a degree, he had to rely upon sort of manual labor type jobs that he did tooling work. He did um, work at a toy store to assemble bikes, but he eventually got a job as a draftsman looking at pulling from some of his engineering degrees to be part of an electrical engineering firm, basically drafting. Before there were there was no such thing as CADs, you did everything on paper. In the meantime, back in India, my youngest brother was born. My youngest brother was actually born probably five or six months after my father left. So he had never met him. And my Middle brother was two years old. So it was an interesting time because you can imagine I'm six, my middle brother's two, youngest brother's just born. And for about two years, my mom lived with my grandfather and raised us in India. Now, in India, it's a little easier to do, I think, because you've got an extended set of family. But it was challenging because I'm sure I wasn't the easiest six-year-old in that dynamic. Do you remember that time, Manish? I remember being a bit of a rule breaker. No, when you were six, at that when dad had gone away, what was in your mind that what was going on? Yeah, I don't remember specifics. It's an interesting uh, question because I've often tried to go back in time and say, how did that affect me? I mean, not having your father around for a two-year period at that age, between six and eight. Formative times, I'm sure I rebelled. I have stark memories of skipping school and breaking rules and getting the appropriate level of talking to and punishment, as you can imagine. But I don't have those crystal clear emotions that you would think, was I sad? Was I upset? Was I, I really don't 
Okay. But grandparents were pretty involved? Oh, yeah. I remember grandfather. My grandmother passed away. She was older, actually. I don't know exactly when she passed away, but on my father's side early on, and I'm having a hard time remembering the sequencing of events, but my grandfather was definitely involved and he was very with it. Traditional patriarch kind of grandfather who ran a stern ship and was very methodical and probably rigid as well. Then after those two years, did dad come back or what happened? Yeah. So in May of 1981, we all, so my two brothers, myself and my mother got on a plane and bought our one-way ticket and came to the U.S. And there's another stark memory. I remember back then you could walk people right up to the plane, right? Family and friends. My middle brother was very much attached to my grandfather. My youngest brother was only two years old, so he was being held. And I'm six, so I'm a bit, I wouldn't say traumatized, but I remember just following instruction because I was very much like, what's going on, right? My youngest brother, as we were walking down the tarmac, sorry, my middle brother, who was four at the time, was very much attached to my grandfather. and He went off running, and so we had to chase him down on the tarmac. But I remember then landing in a JFK, and it was being like in a, in a movie, right? Sort of hadn't seen my father in two years, recognized him. He, you know, he'd grown a mustache and looked like a traditional 70s kind of American Indian man. My youngest brother was terrified of him because he didn't know who he was, a stranger. And so, and that was the start of our second chapter of my life, I guess. Were you insecure? Was there some trauma going on? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, the reason I, I highlighted in India, I have memories of being vocal, being, like I said, a troublemaker, being comfortable in the environment. When I got here, I sort of regressed. I became very shy, very quiet. And because we got here in May, they didn't put us in school. I joined after the summer, so I had the entire summer to acclimate. But when they put me in third grade, they really didn't know what to do with me. I was the first Indian person that had gone to the elementary school, spoke English, as well as a third grader can coming from India. Came, I, I went to an English medium school in India. I was never a grade student in India, looking back at my grades, and I think my lack of discipline showed. But so when I got here, I quieted down, became very introverted in external environments for a long period of time. Why? Why? Why, Manish? That's a good question. It, it was sort of those events of having my father figure leave for a period of time, then to come into a very different environment, look very different. And this is moving to Southern California at the age of eight today. This was moving to a small part of New England in the, in the 1980s, early 1980s. So very different. I stuck out like a sore thumb. And our city, New Bedford, was 75% Portuguese. So it was very homogenous as well. And I did what every child in that, I guess, age group would do. It just protected myself through creating a bunch of shell layers around me. Your own world, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. But it set me up to be focused on studies, right? So I just focused on being a student. I wouldn't say I was a stellar student, even elementary school. But I had my gang, right? I had my, my village, right, between my two younger brothers. As they grew up, they became my natural buddies and play. We'd play together 
we moved into this apartment community where we all lived together. And it was one of those where the center was a parking lot and the apartments dotted in a circle. And so all our kids just played in the center. So it was a pretty safe environment. And we grew up in the, as a lower socioeconomic family. Father worked as a draftsman. My mother worked as a cashier at various jobs. And we worked our way through those things over, over a course of a couple of years. And then we moved into our first home. It was one of those duplexes that you see in New England, which is one multi-layered house with each layer having an entire family structure, kitchen, multiple bedrooms and things. And that forced me to change schools, which was interesting because the school was very close to walking distance or very five minute walk from our house. And, you know, I spent formative years there. I started to now, once I got to that school, I started to create separation between me and other students where added to the talented and gifted program, but still didn't have friends. Like I had acquaintances, but I really didn't have core friends. And most kids, like I have two young kids, by the time they're in fifth and sixth grade, have friends that they see regularly. I didn't. Why? Did you have a problem opening up? Well, what was the issue? I think it was relatability. I just had a hard time relating. And maybe it's a function of opening up as well. I I just couldn't. Yeah, I think I had one foot, maybe both feet still planted in India in the way I thought and the way I interacted. And because of the comfort of my brothers, I gravitated towards that was my safety net. That was my safety situation. And, you know, the parents, Indian parents of that generation protected their kids. They said, this is a foreign land. You're Indian. You're, you're things, these things are good. These things are bad. And it's still the sense of fear that I don't know if that served us well when we were young. How did your brothers take to the change? I mean, you obviously it had a pretty serious impact on you, but how did your brothers take to that change? I think they, you know, being two years old and four years old, it's a little different. My two-year-old brother, he was at home. My four-year-old brother went to preschool. And so at that age, things are changing so rapidly that I think they had an opportunity to assimilate in stride for the most part. So you can see it in the way they think, the way that they approach the world. They approach it very much like somebody born in the United States at that age. And so good and bad, right? So Yeah. But you don't, because you're still an Ajmeri at heart. Is that what you're saying? I don't mean it in a negative way. Ajmer is an amazing place. No, I think what it is, is that, and my wife and I talk about this, or let me give you an example. They say that the language that you learn and speak up until the age of five or six is how you think, right? And so, okay, that was for me mostly Hindi, a little bit of English. Now, can I, do I think in Hindi? I no longer think in Hindi. It's interesting. I have trouble with certain idioms because they don't make sense in Hindi. That's an example of me having a hybrid way of thinking, right? So my values, how I see the world has really definitely been shaped from all of my experience in India. So I would just say that I think very much like a hybrid person. That's not atypical of somebody that spent their formative years in another country. Yeah. Very interesting. But while all of this was going on, dad was a draftsman and mom was working retail at that time. And you saw all of this. I mean, they were working hard to make sure they could give you all three of your good life, so to speak. What did you think about that? Did you observe any of that and said, hey, my parent, my dad's 
making the sacrifices mom is because mom's also a family maker instead of homemaker i call them family makers no i like that term in hindsight i think i have a much better appreciation at the time it felt like we didn't have enough right so buying a toy buying the new sneakers was a big deal buying a name brand jacket or clothes was a huge deal it would be epic battles of why can't we have this and so it was a hard to appreciate that the sacrifice though we saw them work constantly but again i'd say in hindsight yeah, very much appreciate it. i never felt like we were missing anything maybe we didn't have the highest quality of things do you think dad should have come to america and left you guys back there have you ever thought of that it's a good question i've actually never even thought about that would have been easier for us if we all came together i don't think so i think they did it logically should he have waited a couple of years maybe should he have done it before where i always look at my youngest brother who he's had an interesting relationship with dad wasn't there in the first couple of years and so the i'm sure that's to you know created a different kind of relationship with him and each each of my brothers but i don't blame them or i don't say that they did bad by us or negative i think they had to do what they had to do and i can't imagine today having the fortitude of leaving my family for what it would take and what the circumstances would have to be and that's what i think about is that the circumstances had to be dire enough for them to do this because i grew up yeah we were a family unit we were constantly together we did everything together you mom and two brothers right so then you shifted schools and you went to a different school was that better in terms of socializing or it was still the same and in terms of studies yeah i think in terms of studies it was better because i started to come into my own and the 5th and 6th grade is when you start to see distinguished separation as well i think the neighborhood wasn't better I think the neighborhood was actually worse but maybe that's also why I was able to distinguish myself in some way. So those 5th and 6th grade time periods were pretty rapid. Right around that time my grandfather moved to the US as well because at the time my youngest got married so at that point his job as a patriarch was done so his natural place was beside his son. So he moved to the US with us which was great so we had a connection to that generation so we played rummy and carrom and all those things together with him growing up yeah yeah rummy who was winning in rummy generally him or you because i played a lot of rummy with my dad and my grandfather but i was on the losing side usually no i was usually on the on the losing side my middle brother seemed to have done pretty well on on those games wow granddad moved here and then you had a little more activity because mom and dad were generally out working and grandfather was probably a little bit more at home to provide that emotional support so things got a little bit better and then you were in the gt program in the 5th and the 6th grade gifted and talented and then how did it progress from there manish it did and like i said i started to hit my stride in 7th and 8th grade i would say started to see glimmers of the person that I was meant to be and again this is retrospective right created what are lifelong relationships like found partners and friends in middle school that were like-minded also were what quote unquote smarter kids and had the right values discovered skateboarding and biking and so I ended up 
in middle school, being valedictorian of a middle school. And then in high school, you know, that was friendships continued. So we started to build sometimes middle school to high school friendships break, but they continued. And uh, again, now it's a bigger, I went to a school that had, my class had almost 500 kids in my grade, 2000 kids total. And so it was a large school with now the entire city's people coming into the school, the students coming in there. And so now the competition was much higher, but I always found myself in the top 10, maybe not the top number one. And I discovered drama. So I was part of drama club, played soccer for several years, played tennis. So I just started to find my rhythm and relationships that I was sorely lacking, right? So until middle school, I didn't have an attachment to my local society, but middle school created that opportunity in the high school. It just blew open. And so you came out of your shell that you had gone into. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty awesome. So you were doing pretty good. You were in the top 10, give or take, and you were involved in sports, skateboarding. Skateboarding is pretty cool sport. People love skateboarders and other sports. And then you built some good friends also at that time. Yeah, being part of the soccer team, you build camaraderie. Being part of the tennis team, you build camaraderie. Drama club was a passion where we would spend, you know, you spend all day in school, a couple hours in sports, and then drama club was in the evening. So I was at school for 12 to 14 hours a day. I didn't find high school terribly hard academically. And so I was able to do all those activities. And as part of those, we went to Broadway to see plays. We went to other parts of the state to interact with others. I also did a bit of cross country as well. So all in all, I just started to fill out my experience set, right? If you can share anything about life with your kids or the next generation, it's about filling your life with experiences because that's how you enrich it. And so that's what I was starting to do unknowingly. That's a great point for our listeners is fill your life with experiences, with people, friends, etc. right? Is that what you're saying, Manish? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Wow. And do you think sports is a big part of those experiences? Uh, oh, yeah. It teaches you humility. It teaches you to get up when you've fallen down. It teaches you grit. I mean, if you don't practice, you don't get better. It teaches you a sense that you're not going to be the best at something, right? There's only a handful of people that have no limit in sports. Most people reach a limit. So you have to appreciate who you are and live within the confines of you yourself, right? Sort of a perfect metaphor for what eventually life is going to bring to you, right? And, and so I, I think sports is a, an absolute must. Well, that's uh, great to know. So then you finished high school, Manish. So what happened after that? Yeah. So, you know, parents wanted me to be an engineer, doctor, or lawyer. What else is there? It's called the two profession rule for Indians, doctors or engineers. That's all we've got. The two profession rule, the two grade rule, A plus or A. Yeah. Nothing else is acceptable. <laughs> like I said, I think I did fairly well in, in school. I did, you know, okay on my standardized tests, did pretty well in academics, but the school's not well known. It's sort of a large public school in a and on an okay part of the country. Fun fact, New Bedford was known, so if you've ever read Moby Dick, Ahab leaves out of New Bedford Harbor. So there's actually a whaling museum inside of New Bedford. So, you know, you can see a, what the town is really known for its fishing industry. Uh, Titleist is headquartered there. Nothing else. That's it. I got into, I'd say, 
in my second tier schools had to apply to MIT, had to apply to all the organizations that schools that had an engineering degree. And, and I was starting to go towards engineering because I had an aptitude for science and math. And I got into a couple of schools and ultimately decided to go to a technology-focused school, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. It's an engineering-focused school just outside of Boston in Worcester. Started out as a chemistry major, quickly figured out that spending the rest of my life in a lab was not something I wanted to do. So I switched into electrical engineering. And again, I was starting to find my stride, but I hit a hiccup. In freshman year in college, the game changed. My high school, like I said, I coasted through. College, I hit these expectations that were completely different. More importantly, I was no longer living under the rules of my parents. And so sort of that, that liberty, the freedom that comes with it created a, a learning opportunity for me, I think. And so the first couple of quarters were rough just from grades and lack of focus. And, and so I eventually got my act together after freshman year, still ended up with a really good situation. But my junior year, as I started to look forward to what I wanted to do, found biology as an interesting subject. So I actually applied to the bachelor's master's program. And so I switched into a master's program my last year of school. And there's several things in my life that sort of, I couldn't plan that just happened somewhat randomly that if I flipped the coin the other way, I think I'd be in a very different situation. Like what? Because those are the things we want our listeners to know. Yeah. After my first four years of undergrad, I finished one year of my master's because it was a combined program. And my master's thesis advisor said, you might want to go to a PhD program in biomedical instrumentation. This was in the mid nineties and digital radiography was starting to become a real thing. So instead of film, you put it on the screen. So I applied to, to a bunch of schools, got into UPenn for a PhD program. Wow. Ivy League. Yeah, and it was a great program, but I'd start to incur some real dollars because that's a expensive program. And and I knew my middle brother was now going to college and he had gotten into Columbia, so another private school that requires expense, right? And those things were in my mind because it's not like I could foot my own bill at the time. And so I knew it was going to be a burden on my parents. And my youngest brother was two years behind there. Those things are top of mind. So I was sitting there a week before graduation, when I got a call from a recruiter in Southern California, and this is sort of the, one of those things that you couldn't plan. My resume happened to be in our resume book, and they said, come out and interview with us. So I said, free trip to Southern California, sure. Really, no, I had no intention of taking the job. And came out and fell in love with the opportunity. They would pay for my master, so I would finish my master's at USC. I would work at the same time. And so my thought was defer my PhD for a couple of years and come and do my master's so I get one year of education paid for by this organization. And then I have to serve one year of work after that. Logical, if you think about it. I finished my master's in a year at USC. And so I had to serve the rest of my term with the defense contractor. TRW was the name of the company. El Segundo. Yeah. And, at the, and now we're talking mid-90s, Napster, Netscape, Yahoo. The world had changed. And I'm looking and saying, wait, is this really something? Should I pursue this thing called digital radiography and spend four years? Didn't feel right. So I started interviewing and another moment in life where I'm sitting at an interview in 
Cherry Hill, New Jersey at Lucent Labs. Brand name, right? Indians gravitate towards brand names. And I was going to be the fiber to the home expert. My salary would be doubled. I would have a cushy title. And, and I started talking and I said, what about copper? What about cable? And the gentleman, the hiring director said, yeah, there's a company by your neck of the woods that's doing something similar. He mentioned those words. I didn't even bait him on that. That company was started by half my team members went to start that company at TRW. And I discounted it because I'm like, I need to move back east. My parents are said, two years, you're out on the West Coast alone. You have to move back. I did the smart thing there or lucky thing and said, maybe I should interview with that company. So I did. And the, the second life lesson that I've learned is always when you're starting out in any role, always, or really in generally any situation, don't be the smartest person in the room. Always surround yourself with people that are much smarter than you. And in this company, two thirds of the people were PhDs. I was the only one of the junior master's people, just rock stars. And the interview process was eight hours of just bashing. So you wanted to work for the company. Long story short, that company is Broadcom Corporation. I was employee 60 when I joined. We went public eight months after I joined. And, and so I was at the right place at the right time and spent seven years helping to build chips that are today are in probably every household in, in the United States and many households across the world. So it was a really great learning experience on how to be efficient, how to scale quickly, how to just be maniacal about customer service and listen to the market. But it was a great experience. So a couple of life lessons, because this is part of what the show is about is don't be the smartest person in the room. Try to always look for other smart, surround yourself with smarter people. But also you took a chance because Lucent at that time was a big name and you would have been closer to your parents, New Jersey, Boston, etc. You said, let me talk to these folks. And at that time, Broadcom was just a, what we call it a startup right now. That's what it was. 60 people, early early revenue, high risk. And remember... These were all TRW folks. I didn't know Broadcom was mainly all ex-TRW folks. Yeah. So Henry Samueli and, and Henry Nicholas both were at TRW. They were in the same building prior to me getting there. Henry Samueli was a UCLA professor. And yeah, a lot of people. In fact, we uh, had some conflicts with TRW for obvious reasons. Of course, IP and all that other stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, but let's not go there. So then Broadcom uh, went IPO and stuff like that. Then what happened? That was six years of amazing learning lessons for you. Yeah. All of a sudden, I became independently wealthy. So didn't find. And then obviously, the market crashed and, and a lot of that went away. Easy come, easy go, Manish. Right, right. And, and so you know, those are also lessons learned. So capture your value when you can. But I knew that engineering was not something I wanted to do long-term. I wanted to be closer to the customer. And Broadcom was not the right the environment for me to be there. So I decided, let's go back to go get a degree, business school. So I had the luxury of quitting my job and spending two years to re-educate myself in my late 20s. So yeah, I, I went to UCLA and discovered venture capital. And UCLA, I didn't even realize, had a program until I got there around a fellows program. They select four to five people, highly competitive. So I was able to get in. And so I did an internship on Sandell Road, spent the summer learning. And, and then I came back and joined a venture firm 
in Orange County. So what's interesting, I spent a long time in in Orange County and Irvine at Broadcom, and then after business school, I ended up in Orange County in Newport Beach. So it was great. I, I couldn't write the script better. I joined as an associate with the three partners that were lawyers and one partner that was a scientist. And, and really, I was part of their succession plan. So I went from associate to partner in five years, really crafting the strategy for healthcare. This was around the High Tech Act was passed and ACA. And I recognized quickly that we were a small fund. We were an $80 million fund that you're competing in a commodity world. You might think you're the smartest person in the room, but at the end of the day, you're a commodity. Only your hypothesis and your thesis and access to deal flow were your differentiator. So I said, I'm going to make a go at this thing called healthcare IT. At the time, there were only two pure play healthcare IT investors in the country. If you can believe that, this was 2011, uh, 2008. And my partners at Miramar Venture Partners let me dabble and, and uh, so they trusted me. So we made several investments and, and I felt strongly that we needed to have a thesis focused strategy. So I left and said, I'm going to raise my own fund. I got an anchor investor, got us to $17 million in committed capital of a hundred million dollar fund and spent a year of my life learning a lesson that it is really hard to raise capital in 2011 on a healthcare strategy. But I think today I'm stronger because of it, because it taught me a lot of humility and, a, and an understanding that I wasn't ready for it at the time. So I actually joined one of the companies I was on the board of prior to my leaving my other fund. And the chairman jumped in as CEO. So these two board members then took that company in. And so it was an interesting company. It was a healthcare technology company servicing consumers. and and we took that company over a course of seven years from a million dollars to a hundred million dollars in revenue. I was put in charge of all deals. So I did acquisitions. We did seven acquisitions. I'd never done an acquisition until I got there. I led all capital raises because I spoke the language of the investment community. So it was easy for me to pitch the story. We raised a quarter billion dollars from some of the best funds in the country. And we grew this business. Eventually, I got operational roles. So I was head of integration, so post-merger integration, head of product and solutions. Really, it was being set up to be the next COO of the company with the logical path to be CEO. But I was burned out, right? The company, after seven years, we just, you know when it's time to hand the reins to someone else. And so I stepped out and was really not actively looking, but I got a call from a recruiter that was looking to fill a role at Mayo. And the recruiter said, you're exactly the kind of person that Mayo needs because they're developing this platform strategy. Is a new CEO. And I chuckled. I said, my first company, if you exclude TRW for a second, first company, I was employee 60. Second company, I was employee four. My last company, I was employee 14. How does this make any sense on paper? But it's Mayo Clinic. So I took the interview. And if you've ever been to Mayo or interacted with Mayo, it's a special place. You fall in love with the mission, you fall in love with the methodology. And I fell in love. So I said, I'll give it a shot. I'll help you write the strategy. So I joined. So I took, here's a second lesson or whatever number we're on. I took a lower role, right? I had a C-level role, arguably at a startup. So I took a, what's a, called a vice chair role, the equivalent to like a VP in corporate development. So I went from an operational role to a transactional role. I said, I'll do this because I want to hear what they're all about. I want to help shape something that's different. I, 
up until that point, my healthcare experience was in diagnostics, was in wellness and prevention. And Mayo Clinic is really at the opposite of the spectrum. It's really tertiary care and complex care. But I had to learn something in a short-term process. And again, fell in love with the organization. And, and after we wrote the strategy, they brought in Dr. John Halemka to be the president of this new business unit called Mayo Clinic Platform. And at the time, our CAO, chief administrative officer, and our CEO said, put your name in the hat for COO. And Mayo, everything operates in a dyad model. So physician and administrative partner. So I said, okay. And they gave me the job. And now here I am. And I look back at my career and say, I'm very comfortable in technology. I'm very comfortable in a cap table and governance model. I'm very comfortable at the healthcare technology landscape. My entire career was built so I could do this role. And I couldn't plan it that way. And I would say, I'm in a dream job. I've been in this role for three years. I can say we're impacting tens of millions of lives and everything we're doing. And I approach it with a sense of humility because a lot of people gave me a chance and took a risk where on paper, it really doesn't make sense. Manish, for our listeners, can you explain what platform is? Because you use that term, just a brief explanation, what Mayo platform is. Yeah. So today, healthcare is a bunch of proprietary things, right? Proprietary data sources, proprietary patient populations. So everybody's got their little fiefdom that they're protecting. And what we like to do is to break that apart. So the shared learning of physicians and multiple practices can be shared so that next patient that any participating physician sees, they get the benefit of all the patients that are seen, right? So you make better collective decisions. So how do you do that? You have to break data boundaries. You have to be willing to share your data. You have to do this in a patient privacy protected manner. And you have to be willing to engage and share your knowledge. So what we've done is created a true global federated data network, Mayo data next to other high quality institutions. And we made it available to innovators so they can create innovation for any particular kind of disease area or clinical area. And that's a global venture. And then we're enabling physicians to and health systems to participate in that instead of picking a bunch of point solutions for any particular problem they have, they can connect into this thing called Mayo Clinic Platform and get the, the experience of the best minds across the globe, right? And so the 10 million patients that Mayo has seen are some of the sickest patients, the most complex patients. And if you can start to create care models and clinical decision tools based on all of that history, the output of that will be better than any single physician's experience. So that's healthcare. That's our platform. We're a business unit inside a Mayo Clinic. And I presume AI is going to play a key role also in going forward into this. So that data infrastructure allows you to do really anything. You can test care models, you can create algorithms, you can create insights. So the idea is to remove, so if you think about healthcare innovation, the challenge is I need access to information, I need access to data. So we've now changed that paradigm. The second thing is you need access to tools. So we've created those. The last, you need access to actual end users. So those are the physicians, nurses, administrators. So we've also simplified that. So you can take this value chain that usually consists of 
18 months to get access to data, a year to two years to develop the tools, a year to negotiate a contract to implement. So your sales cycle or your implementation cycle is three years. So we've reduced that to six months. So why that's interesting is now any innovator across the globe can create innovation. And that's how we're going to transform healthcare to make it cheaper. And more accessible. That's exactly right. One of our, one of the projects I know we're in time, but I, one of the projects I'm most proud of is pre-pandemic, we said, let's change what the word hospital means. Can we take care of patients in their home as if they were in a hospital? Instead of going from the emergency room to a bed for two days, can we take you from the emergency room, send you home, but you get all the things as if you were in the hospital bed. So nutrition, medicine, diagnostics, 24-7 access to a physician in your home with high reliability, that's a much better patient experience. And then this thing called COVID came that it forced everybody to think outside and think think about how to get patients out of a hospital. So it accelerated this. So with this concept of hospital at home, been around, but we, Mayo Clinic, and their partnership with Kaiser, we accelerated this thing. And why I'm mentioning that is that's innovation. That's actually patient-centric. And we know it's safer We because of hospital-borne illnesses. We know it's cheaper, and we know patients love it. Right. So that's a simple example of some of the things we're working on. Fantastic. We are lucky to have that. Manish, you touched on a couple of things. I want to just address that because we asked that to everybody, because moving forward, have mentors played a role in your life at all? And I'm talking informal, formal, you know, mentors come in different shapes, sizes, etc. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Some people are really good at creating a mentor model. I think I've relied upon informal learnings from my conversations with people. So one thing that I would say that happened to me after leaving my engineering world and business school is I've had an opportunity to engage with thousands of people in my normal day-to-day life, because as a venture capitalist, you see hundreds of companies a month. As a deal maker in an M&A role, you see a lot of deals and you engage with a lot of different kinds of people. And in my current role, I've engaged with a lot of different kinds of people. So I would say I've never had a formal mentor, but I can tell you what I learned from every one of my supervisors and colleagues along the way and all the conversations. I think if I have any skill that I'm proud of is that I'm good at distilling some nugget of information from every conversation and and really taking it and having it, inserting it in my core being so it becomes part of me. So it's not like I'm relying upon one or two people. That's fantastic. So basically taking uh, some value out of every conversation and that's a message to our listeners Manish, you've had an incredible journey so far, and obviously there's so much more to go. And given the world we are in today, it's a kind of, where do you see the journey going from now? I mean, nobody can predict 20 years, even 10 years from now, but a kid from Ajmer, from Bedford, now at Mayo, where does that kid go? So I'm starting to lay the groundwork for when I can have more impact. So thinking about not-for-profit board work, leveraging the sort of the great relationships I've had the fortune of creating over the last 30 years of my career, starting to think about foundations, starting to think about I want to be part of. Because those things, I think, to create truly trusted relationships take five to 10 years. So that's my hope. I'm not done. I'm early 50s. I've got... You've just begun. 
couple of decades still left in me. And, and frankly, as my wife says, if you're not actively working, you're kind of annoying. My hope is that this is my last full-time job, but if it isn't, there's a lot of problems in healthcare. And I feel like I'm just starting to understand how all these pieces fit together. Great. I think we're lucky to have someone like you solving our healthcare issues. Manish, uh, we asked you to look forward. Just if you can just take a brief look back, just pretend I'm Manish coming out of Bedford. What would be the one or two things, knowing where you are today, that you would be giving as advice to the Manish coming out of Bedford, let's just say out of the engineering college that you had? Oh, gosh. Two things. One, everything eventually works out because you've got a commitment to doing the work. Two, believe in yourself. I would say that the lasting impact that I still struggle with every now and then that I think moving from India to the U.S. had was this discomfort in my own abilities or lack of belief that I could do something or was sufficiently that feeling like the emperor's got no clothes, right? It's that belief that, am I right for this role? Or just telling myself that this, you've earned the right to be wherever you are, but you still have to prove yourself, right? And so it's sort of a little bit of empathy with a little bit of confidence. That's great. So everything is going to work out, but also a little bit of empathy and a little bit of confidence. Fantastic, fantastic. Manish, we always ask our guests at the end just a quick lightning questions. Your definition uh, briefly about Indianness. It's an interesting question. I would say what's great about our culture, as I see it, we have a respect for meritocracy. And I genuinely believe that. Like the merits of the argument outweigh who's delivering it. And it's a naive statement in many ways. I understand that. That's not how the world works. But I think it's part of why we as a subculture or culture are where we are, right? And I think that comes with, that's both good and bad. So I think that's an important definition or part of what Indianness means. I think the second part of it is this relentless, you know, what was the slogan? It was a car manufacturer, the relentless pursuit of excellence. Yeah, it's just in me. I, I just, I give it all. I don't, you know, whether I'm a dad, whether I'm a husband, whether I'm a COO, whatever it is, I pour everything into it. That's just who I am. And I think that's true for who Indianness is for me. Great feedback. Relentless pursuit of excellence and belief in meritocracy. So that's fantastic. Last one, a person, not your family, alive from India or outside India of Indian origin that inspires you or you admire? One or two at the max. We ask this to everybody too, by the way. I was part of this Indian networking organization in the 90s, forgetting the name of it now, but they held a conference and they, I don't remember, I don't think it was Thai, but a gentleman by the name of Sashita Roar gave a presentation. And up until that point, my impression, leaders of Indian origin tended to be very much, they were either very Indian and could not assimilate a Western discussion or were so Western that they couldn't assimilate. And he, for the first time, connected the dots for me. Read his book and Midnight to Millennium and gave me this sense that these things are really connectable. Now, I've never met him. I don't know that I ever have a chance or will ever have a chance, but I would say that was an interesting 
person because it was sort of a, well, you can really do both. He's one of the most articulate that you'll meet. He's a member of parliament in India now. He used to be at the UN and yeah, but great choice. Manish, thank you so much. There's some amazing life lessons and a lot to learn for our listeners. Thank you for sharing. I think that's the most important thing that I would have to say and really, really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, this was fun for me because I haven't actually relived some of those memories in a long time, but appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Indianist podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future inspirational stories. 